Hello, welcome to Raw File News, a subdivision of CIA files, true stories of U.S. intelligence. I am your host, Topher M. Ford. I've got my co-host, Brandon Givens. Brandon, status hey, update. Hey, ah, doing pretty well. I uh, so, um, went to listen to Irish folk music last night, and that was it was a lot of fun. It's wouldn't expect that in Almaty, Kazakhstan, but yeah, they were really good. I really enjoyed it. So, were they like uh, Kazakh natives who were doing the making the music? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, you know, they were they were locals, and yeah, they uh, it was neat. They totally are into it. You know, it's like somebody liking a you know different ethnic music and doing really well at it and being interested and yeah they they was it's excellent that sounds more fun than what i've been doing with my weekend which is painting so although it's fine i don't mind painting um but yeah i haven't seen live music in two years now and i i kind of miss it <laughs> um so what's in the news news that's why we are talking today um well, let's take a look first up uh in yemen the two-month-long ceasefire continues to hold between houthi rebels and the exiled yemeni government despite sporadic violence and the houthis rejection of the terms of the ceasefire the rebel leaders initially claimed that the ceasefire was meaningless while blockades remained keeping much-needed food and other supplies from reaching the country's starving population. Since then, however, the blockade has been eased and much-needed humanitarian aid has begun arriving in the country. And Hans Grunberg, the UN's special envoy for Yemen, says both sides are working to reopen the airport in the capital city of Sana'a to commercial flights and, uh, you know, everything else. Uh, Grunberg recently met with the Houthis in Sana'a to discover, or some, sorry, to discuss ongoing efforts toward peace. He says the conversations were constructive, and he was given quote reaffirmed commitment to all aspects of implementing the truth. Truce. Mm -hmm. This uh, this comes after Yemen's estranged president Abdrabu Mansour Hadi stepped down, handing over internationally recognized leadership of Yemen to an eight-person council of leaders selected by Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. Houthi rebels scoffed at the new council, which they called a recycling of Saudi mercenaries. The installation of the council actually came as a surprise to many, including several members of the council themselves. However, speculation that back channels have been opened between the new council and Houthi leaders has some feeling optimistic for sustained peace. Meanwhile, Houthi rebels have criticized U.S. involvement in the conflict as America has increased its naval presence in the Red Sea. From ABC News, quote, The new task force of two to eight ships patrolling at a time will be commissioned Sunday and aims to target those smuggling coal, drugs, weapons, and people in the Red Sea, according to Vice Admiral Brad Cooper, who oversees the U.S. Navy's Mideast-based Fifth Fleet. Coal smuggling throughout the Red Sea has been used by Somalia's Al-Qaeda-linked Al-Shabaab militant group to fund attacks. Weapons linked by the U.S. Navy and analysts to Iran have been intercepted in the region as well, 
likely on their way to the Houthis. The rebels also fired missiles in the Red Sea that have come near an American warship in the past. So, you know, the thing that I found most interesting about this was this, uh, the council that was established as the, you know, internationally recognized leaders of Yemen. It was a big surprise. No one saw it coming. <laughs> and even some of the people on the council were like, oh, I guess I'm on this council now. And yeah, that, I mean, well, what, it's this gray area about like um, legitimacy. It's um, a president stepped down or fled, depending on who you talk to. And well, they haven't held elections. They're, you know, the. The United Nations is recognizing this transitional government, this council of people that are absolutely, totally not puppets, even though they were picked by two foreign governments. Right. Um, but, I mean, kind of what, what can you do? And one would hope that all the sides would sit and talk it out. There's a group, too, that Southern Council that kind of wants to split the country up, Um Go ahead and let the the Shiite Houthi have their own territory, and let the Sunni have the South. And you know, I don't know; they might want to split it three ways. But my understanding is two. But they don't have um, really the legitimacy to make that happen. And I don't know that Saudi Arabia wants it to either. So they're trying to find a way that. They could have peace, but also stop Iranian influence in the area. And it's a, it's a hard sell because if the Houthi become independent, then arguably they would be a puppet of Iran. And Saudi Arabia doesn't want that. They want their puppet. <laughs> they want the country to be their puppet. So can you explain a little bit about this conflict? You know, because a lot of people keep saying that this is in some ways a proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran. So what is the, the deal with the, you know, the tension between those two governments? Well, I have to go back to the death of Muhammad. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's... <laughs> I'm looking back. at the clock. That's uh... a. <laughs> yeah. Let me see if I can I can make it short. Um, there was an argument over who should lead um, the caliphate um, after uh, Muhammad passed, and one group wanted the most competent leader, you know, or who was thought to be the most competent leader, charismatic, and they go on to become the Sunni. And another group wanted a blood relative of Muhammad, and. Um, they become the Shia. And over time, they end up kind of splitting an ideology. I think the third or fourth caliphate was actually the guy the Shia wanted. But then after that, the, they kind of permanently split. And, um, you know, over time, they've split more and more. The Shia, uh, they have kind of a, a more organized clergy and like Ayatollah, like kind of a grand leader. So they there's a... Uh, I mean, I mean, somebody want to punch me in the face. But I heard someone say that you could compare the Shia to Catholicism and the Sunni to Protestantism, and kind of the way they organize. And you know, with you know, at the top of the Catholic Church is the Pope, and the Shia have the Ayatollah, and the Shia also have a little bit more like iconography and such. And the Sunni 
it's more about a, a legal tradition, personal relationship, um, and you know, people getting the calling to be imams and that sort of thing. Um, but okay, so that does, I mean, the way you say it there, which you know, obviously, we're both uh, white guys who have never been uh, Muslim, but I mean, that does sound vaguely familiar. Right. As far as Western religion. And there's been a, um, a constant struggle. And the sometimes Saudi Arabia, like Muslims are supposed to go to Mecca um, on the Hajj. And sometimes the Saudis will say, no, we don't want the Shia there. And then the, sometimes it even gets kind of like, it's hard for us to understand holding a multi-century grudge, but things like, you know, a, a Sunni seeing the grave of a Shia prophet from history and wanting to spit on it, and vice versa. Um, I mean, these would be individual actions, but people take them very personally, and it's kind of a continuation of that, but between nations. Saudi Arabia is Wahhabist, uh, so not only are they Sunni, they're like super-duper Sunni. Um, very literal interpretation, literalist, originalist, fundamentalist interpretation of the Quran. And um, not that the Shia are not conservative, they are, but um, not exactly, perhaps not exactly as one would consider the Wahhabi as conservative. And They're just a different kind of conservative. Yes. And the Iran is... It's the the large. They're kind of like um, the daddy Shia nation. It's the largest, most powerful, and they have consistently supported the Palestinians and the struggle against um, uh, the United States' influence in the region and Israel's influence. And Saudi Arabia has made peace with Israel, um, profits from their relationship, and as very good relations with the United States. So there's the religious element, and then there's also the political element. That, right. And yeah. we learned about the about that a little bit with um, Kim Philby's dad, St. John Philby, and how he helped to establish that first connection between uh, Ibn Saud, Saudi Arabia's first president, to U.S. oil interests, much to the chagrin of the British, uh, if you remember our yeah. first well, you, Kim Philby episode. Yeah, and you got, uh, I can't remember the house now, it starts with an H, but the Jordanian family, um, you know, the Brits had good relations with them, and uh, they, they also have been more open to working with, um, with Israel. And so, yeah, it's a, it's kind of a big, like, oh, you know, you guys, uh, you know, the Iranians would look at the Saudis and say, well, the holiest city in Islam is there, and you guys are, you know, kowtowing for money, and you're, you know, you're corrupt and just want money and kowtowing to the Americans and the Israelis. And, um, and also there's a Shia minority that's a bit persecuted in Saudi Arabia. And so Iran is like, oh, okay, we're all about protecting the minority, and um, yeah, and that's also something the Houthis claim is that they want their government to be more pluralistic. Um, I mean, they don't they don't much care for the United States and Israel 
either, but their claim at least is that they want to have a more pluralistic democratic style government. But where the religious minority has more of a say in what's going on. Right. But you might have to dig dig into a little bit more like which religious minorities they might accept. Um, right. They might say like, okay, we're, you know, we're okay with Sunnis, for instance, but you know, you probably can't go there as an atheist and say, oh, okay, we're all open and loving each other now. All right. Right. This is um, more. We need we need to elect more Jewish people to the government. Yeah, yeah. They, they find it. There, there was a, definitely a strong history of Judaism in that region. Um, I'm just like, yeah. I, I'm speculating from my uneducated position that they would not be excited <laughs> about becoming that open. Yeah, probably so, not. Probably not. But yeah. we'll see. Maybe they're they're a lot more uh, open than we think. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, moving on uh, to this story about U.S. weapons sales to Nigeria. Despite concerns over human rights violations, President Biden has approved the sale of military equipment to the Nigerian government. The United States will sell Nigeria 24 Bell AH. IZ, or I'm sorry, AH-1Z Viper helicopters, along with other equipment valued at nearly $1 billion. Back in November, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken visited Muhammad Buhari and, I'm sorry, Muhammadu bin Buhari, um, forgive me for the mispronunciations, in the Nigerian capital of Abuja. He voiced concerns over human rights violations and in general, Nigeria's government is accused of widespread corruption. However, the U.S. has reaffirmed its commitment to help the Nigerian government fight Islamic terrorist groups and armed gangs in the region, including Boko Haram and various rebel groups. And back in October 2020, Nigerian forces gunned down people in the streets protesting police brutality. Blinken has said, uh, I'm sorry, Blinken had said, uh, that arms sales would be contingent on the results of an investigation into the attack. So, so there was no investigation or I didn't see any results of the investigation. It may just be that they weren't in the news, but uh, I don't know if we can <laughs> assume that yeah. the investigation uh, cleared that. I don't know. Yeah. It, I, I didn't see any information about that uh, I, I mean i've got very mixed feelings on this like um i mean the boko haram and all those groups as uh, terrorist organizations like nigeria needs assistance and they they need the technology to to get them I, i'm not an expert at you know terror guerrilla warfare so i don't know if viper helicopters are the, are the best thing but i imagine it would be helpful because you know they are in inaccessible places or places that are difficult to you know to get to and right yeah you know, they're kidnapping people and so I, I don't know that these weapons would necessarily be used on you know uh, people protesting police brutality I guess they could be I mean that would be the right but the, that uh, would be pretty that would be pretty egregious if you're sending military <laughs> helicopters to protesters so yeah i doubt that that's what what will be i guess it kind of sounds like as far as you know western aid in the region 
the United States is kind of maybe stuck in a hard spot where, yeah, Boko Haram and these other rebel groups and armed gangs, because it sounds like it's like a mixture, like a melange of uh, terrorists and uh, anti-government rebels, but also just gangs of people who are, you know, like bandits, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, 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 and, uh... and so that, you know, it sounds like the government does need help in doing that because these groups are real threats. But at the same time, it also sounds like the Nigerian government's, you know, no episode of uh, Mr. Rogers themselves, you know. Yeah, there's there's a huge corruption issue there. On paper, Nigeria is incredibly wealthy. And they, they in all honesty, internationalized, uh, compared to other nations, they don't have a lot of debt. Um, so uh, at least they're not creating debt that's getting stolen by corrupt officials. The corrupt officials are just stealing the money as it's being produced <laughs> or stealing, the, right. stealing the, the oil as it's coming through. Um, so what is it like in Nigeria for, you know, your regular average citizen? It's pretty rough. Uh, they shortage of water. It's um, unemployment's very high. We had um, some Nigeria when I was in Benin. Like Nigerians would come over to to work sometimes, and it was you know, they had a reputation for it being kind of a violent place. And even the locals in Benin, of course, you know everybody's always talking about their neighbors. Oh, you can't trust them. But, you know, there was this perception that, you know, it was kind of desperate. But it counteracts or it, it it's contradictory because they they have pretty they could they have car manufacturing, they have heavy industry. They could make pretty much anything they wanted to make. They could probably make these uh, attack helicopters as long as they had the licensing um to do it. It's just it's kind of, just kind of corrupt and Things like extreme uh, wealth and inequality. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And well, things like uh, electricity goes out a lot, but you know, anybody who's anybody just buys a generator. So you know, if you got so, it's um, what was the Roman guy that really got mad at wealth inequality? He said we have public uh, squalor and private uh, opulence, and that's kind of Nigeria. Is you got walled walled houses and stuff and inside it's really they're beautiful and they have their own generators but then on the streets it's pretty rough you know it's really yeah. really poor and that sounds familiar i mean not i mean it's not to that degree in the united states but it's not that far away and it sounds like you know that's a situation in a lot of places in the world yeah. where a nation might have a lot of uh, natural resources or just you know wealth you know I, the words escaping me but the nation has some form of wealth but the people in charge control it keep themselves fat and happy and let everybody else you know go fart in the wind yeah yeah that's they well and also if you if you're living behind your private walls and you know, you don't really care if the electricity goes out very much as long as your electricity is running because you got that private generator. 
Now you might care if it knocks your factory out that you own. You know, you want to make sure that gets set up. So, I mean, that's kind of what that Roman um, kind of politician or historian was getting at was like, right. hey, you know, we got to we got to make our public spaces beautiful because how people people will be inspired by what's around them. If you got a bunch of just junk on the ground and people are throwing junk there, they don't take pride in their surroundings. And if you lock yourself away, then you don't care about what's outside. So make beautiful parks, make, you know, nice ponds and have right. beautiful statues. So a rising tide to... lifts it all, lifts us all. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, that, that doesn't really seem to have, have that there. And it's sad because I mean, the country, it's population is just exploding. I was like, um, Benin, like a lot of those regions, the po- the um, the GDP grows, but um, not per capita because their birth rates are higher than their economic growth. So it's like, oh, we have six, eight percent economic growth, you know, like really, really pretty, pretty big growth. But then it's like, oh, but you know, when we divide it by the number of people we have each year, it's actually we're not getting any wealthier, right? Uh, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, we've we've had some listeners who have commented that I sound sometimes like I don't want to be here. <laughs> you know <laughs> that I that this is a chore, and it. I think the reason for that is because so much of what we're reporting it just sounds terrible, and it you know it bums me out. It to you know understate it. It just it's depressing, and. It's also frustrating because most of most of these problems are a result of greed and wealth hoarding, just pointless greed too. That you know, I because I, I feel like there's greed, right? And that I want a lot of money and I want a nice big house, and then it's like, okay, I mean, you know, whatever that kind of sucks, but okay, you've got your big house. You got a fat bank account. You got more money than you could possibly spend. You got more money than your kids could spend. Why do you have to keep hoarding wealth? Why do you have to keep, you know, and there's like no admission from this side that their wealth hoarding hurts a lot of people. Either no admission or that they just don't care. West Africa is complicated with that, though. Like... Uh, between the, the rich and poor, like the the regular people, they often don't like the idea of anyone saving money. And if you have money or save money, you might be considered kind of a bad person because you're supposed to share. Or you're supposed to, you know, somebody in your community is is hungry. Then you know, you got your cousin calls you. Oh, I didn't, you know, I didn't eat tonight. Oh, oh, you go, oh, come on over. We'll feed you. Or, oh, your cousin calls you and it's like, oh, my kid got, I don't have books for my kid. If you've got the money, you're supposed to give it. And some of the elite, they, they might be a little more westernized, but at the same time, they were the elite before. I mean, they do like some, it's kind of fashionable to blame that on people becoming like the Europeans. But I mean, I think for hundreds of years, it looked very similar. Like you had wealth hoarders there and then wealth sharers. But at the same time, 
it, it kind of kept it, the, the sharing kind of keeps people down a bit because I mean, I've talked to these Peace Corps volunteers that their whole thing was helping women learn to, to save their money. And they would all kind of pull it together and make their own little private bank. And they were like, I can't save money. And it wasn't so much that their expenses were so great. It was, well, as soon as I get home, my sister's going to ask for something or my mom's going to ask for something or my cousin. And so it's gone. Like, and I can't say no. Like if I say no, I will be socially blackballed. And, you know, it's like you, you called me up and was like, oh, Brandon, I'm about to mess up your you know, mortgage payment or something. I might just say, well, that sucks to be you, you know, or something. Um, but I mean, maybe I'll help you. But if I don't, society's not going to be mad about it, you know, um, especially, you know, I guess your brother, sister, your immediate family, people might look at you weird if you didn't help, if you could. But, but it's not as strong a taboo. Right. And, you know, your your cousins and second cousins and, and all that, you know, so, you know, we, I, you know, I know people that made, ended up making what would be like an American salary, but they were local and just like they had nothing because cu cousins and everything were just constantly, oh, you know, I gotta, you know, I gotta pay for my kids tuition. I gotta get this. I gotta get that. And they just, they just can't say no. Right. And. And then it ends up, you're like, well, why am I going to work really hard? Or why am I going to try to save if whatever I have, I'm going to have to give it up anyway? So <laughs> it creates this kind right. of rough cycle where then you're demotivated because, I don't know. But, you know, I, I think it, it kind of worked in a um, a more small rural setting. But I don't think that it, it, it where you have like a very high mortality rate. But I, I don't think it, it necessarily is functioning very well in what we call like a capitalist society. Right. And that's neither good nor bad. It just kind of is. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I just finished this book by Sebastian Younger called Tribe on Homecoming and belonging i think is what it's oh, called yeah and uh really great book uh the focus of it is kind of like how society treats uh like veterans who come back from combat and and how uh the way society treats them can greatly contribute to uh their ptsd but in it he t he talks about how for the vast majority of human history, you know, when people were living in tribes and societies were, you know, smaller, um, doing things that benefited yourself at the cost of the tribe at large were that were considered terrible crimes. And so stuff like wealth hoarding would get you kicked out of society real fast and that there was no tolerance for that. And that that was how humanity has existed for the bulk of its existence, you know, uh, and it, that the situation that we're in now with uh, capitalism and um, wealth hoarding and that sort of, and like a, uh, a dissolution 
of a societal responsibility is a relatively modern thing that we haven't adjusted to, that we haven't adapted to yet. Um, and he made some good points. And I don't think he was necessarily arguing that we like regress back to these pre-tribal or, you know, these old tribal conditions. Cause he also pointed out a lot of the, you know, it wasn't like living back then was a utopia. You <laughs> yeah, know? there's there's so, a lot of violence. Like historically, most violence is non-state violence. Right, but he was, <laughs> but yeah, he was he was just making that that point. You know, that this is a relatively new thing, and we're still trying to like figure out how to exist and operate in this kind of society. So I think it's uh, it's an interesting thing to keep in mind. I guess. Well, yeah, I mean, even if you just go from uh, like the oh, you know, the last ice age, uh, Neolithic revolution, it's 10,000 years. And so humans, you know, we've kind of been doing our thing for 10,000 years or so. And the modern society, as we would call it, at most, you could say like the 1500s, but really you should say like 1650 you know, and then the industrial revolution. Yeah. then that, that's really not until 1830. Right. And so, yeah, it's incredibly new, like out of 10,000 years at most 500 years have been living and closer to like a nuclear family. And really the whole nuclear family is probably 50 years, 80 years. Right. Think about it. Right. (laughs) And so, yeah, it's very new. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, that's that's our thoughts on that. I guess um, we're moving on now to uh, Pakistani missile strikes in Afghanistan. Pakistan. I'm sorry. What were you going to say? I was going to say, oh, oh. Uh, Pakistan's ambassador to Afghanistan was summoned by Taliban leaders on Saturday, April 16th, to answer for Pakistani missile strikes in the coast and Kunar provinces. Over the past week, Pakistan has launched over 1,500 missiles into Kunar at what it claims were terrorist holdouts. Uh, Pakistani officials say terrorists from the region have been illegally crossing the border into Pakistan to carry out attacks. This is in addition to what the Taliban claims that there have been also uh, like helicopter attacks and other military attacks in the region that have been killing civilians as well as, you know, alleged terrorists. Reuters reports, quote, a local Taliban leader in coast, Malawi Mohammed Reis Halal, said two districts were bombed by Pakistani helicopters and 36 people had been killed. While Pakistan says the military attacks targeted terrorists, Taliban officials say the attacks have destroyed civilian homes, forcing peaceful Afghanis to flee. They warn that continued attacks will result in serious consequences. So, hmm. I don't know what serious consequences they would they mean. I don't know how well, well the Taliban they don't just write a strong letter. <laughs> that is, well, that is true. Um, but at the same time, they have they do have to like. I think that they've been walking kind of a tightrope to maintain their legitimacy on the international stage. So. I, well, they want I, that money that's locked up. Right. Yeah. 
uh, well, Pakistan, it's like, oh, they like, you know, turned a blind eye, hit bin Laden and that doctor that helped us find him is, I think, I'm pretty sure he's still locked up there. I haven't heard otherwise. And I think I read up yeah. on it a year ago or so. Yeah. And we really did that guy dirty. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm very sad about that. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I was like, yeah, that, uh, and, and also it teaches other people to not trust the U.S., you know. Uh, yeah. It was like, um, well, we get in our, sometimes people, they think that we are the CIA or something and will message us asking for, like, missions and stuff. And I'm like, they're from other countries half the time. I'm like, why would you, <laughs> why, why would you trust us? Don't you know what happens? <laughs> <laughs> no, you're going to end up in jail somewhere. <laughs> or, uh, um, yeah, don't do that, people. Anyone who's listening, we are not the CIA, and we cannot help you. Well, and, uh, and I, I wouldn't would, message I would the CIA in yeah, general. Yeah, don't message the CIA. And no, ask yeah. them, like, we I can't will. help you, but also it's a bad idea in general. <laughs> yeah. So you work if you're not a not a U.S. citizen, and yeah, oh yeah, I'll totally rat out my own nation for it's like, uh, <laughs> oh no, but uh, in Pakistan they've they've hid these guys and worked with these guys for a long time, and so it's it's kind of like uh, Pakistan has experienced what the U.S. experienced with oh well we gave these guys all kind of weapons and helped them fight the Russians, and but now, ha-ha-ha. And Pakistan played both sides during the Afghan war. You know, they um, supported the U.S., at least by face, but, yeah, they seemed to kind of turn a blind eye to a lot of the Taliban's shenanigans. There are a lot of Pashtuns in Pakistan, and the Taliban are a Pashtun-like tribe organization that's mostly Pashtun. And so, you know, it's that whole, yeah, trying to play all sides, but now uh, the U.S. military isn't there and they've been given weapons to a bunch of radical people and weapons float around and uh, now they got to deal with it. Right. And maybe the way they're dealing with it, uh, isn't the best way. I mean, I don't know, but <laughs> it's, it's they're certainly making a lot of people angry. Yeah, and people people there do seem to get upset pretty easily. I guess if you tell people snowflakes, that might be it, because you know you say the wrong thing about a religion or something, and people get kind of mad. Um, so yeah, I don't really know how they're going to fix this. Right. Well. We'll move on then, because <laughs> we we don't know how to fix it either. So, yeah. um, we're going to talk now about uh, Jap uh, Japanese Russian tensions. On Friday, April fifteenth, the Russian Defense Ministry announced that Russian submarines had successfully fi test fired caliber cruise missiles in the Sea of Japan. This is part of an increase in Russian military presence in the area, including near territoria territory that Russia and Japan both claim as their own. Japanese officials lodged an official complaint with Russia immediately following the exercise, and the Japanese government has stepped up its intelligence gathering efforts 
Japan Times reported, Thursday's Russian missile test also came a day after the U.S. 7th Fleet said it was conducting joint naval exercises with the Maritime Self-Defense Force in the same waterway. Those drills, which have involved the USS Abraham Lincoln aircraft carrier and MSDF warships, were largely seen as a show of force amid North Korea's recent missile launches and work to repair its main nuclear test site. So a lot of stuff going on in that small region of the world. Yeah, they well, they Japan and Russia never signed a peace treaty after World War II. Uh, and so, I mean, they have like open relations or whatever, you know, embassies, and but they still haven't officially ended the war. And there's some islands that are claim, you know, de facto Russia, but, right? Because Russia like seized them during World War II, right? Yeah, yeah. And Japan claims them, and so that's kind of what this is maybe about. Japan might be waiting for an opportunity. But I don't know if they – I mean, I guess legally they could. I mean, they're they're supposed to only act in a defensive manner, but if those are their islands and the issue was never settled, then perhaps they could jump in and claim them. And since like 80% of Russia's military force is occupied right now, it might be the time to do that if, right. they, if it's going so these- to be done. So those Russian missile tests are likely Russia going, don't even think about it. That's that's my thought, yeah. <laughs> like, we're still here. Yeah. I know you, you think we're not paying attention, but we're still here. I know what you're thinking about. You better not touch that cookie. <laughs> yeah. Touch <laughs> yeah. Especially with uh, U.S. forces, you know, floating around the area, you know. <laughs> Poking around. Yeah, I don't think Russia can afford... I don't know how important the islands are to Russia uh, strategically, but they certainly... If nothing else, they don't want to lose face amid everything. I have in Japan, like, swoop in and go, oh, we got them back. Well, yeah, I mean, their first major, uh, like, humiliating... I don't know, you could argue there were other humiliating defeats, but... They were defeated by Japan um, and their war against each other. And back was, in the days of the Tsar. Yeah, yeah, and that was that was uh, pretty pretty tragic for the empire. And it's like a European nation defeated by an Asian nation. What? It's like, oh yeah, right. Yeah, I underestimated I rem- the Japanese. Yeah, I got that from all the different history podcasts I've listened to. <laughs> Tsar <laughs> Nicholas was like, whatever, those stupid Asians, because he was insanely racist, you know, was like, whatever, we can uh, we can mop them up and, and get them out of there, no problem. And then uh-huh. Japan destroyed their entire Navy. They're like, oh, no, what? <laughs> I didn't see that coming. Yeah. Well, that's well, yeah, hubris. Hubris is, is a big one. Um, you know, and well, it seems like hubris got Russia in trouble recently, too. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, well hubris, hubris takes down many, many a strong nation. Yeah. Um, speaking of um, threats to Russia, we have uh, Finland, Sweden, and NATO. 
Uh, Sweden and Finland have shown increased interest in joining NATO following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, despite warnings from President Vladimir Putin against this. The Finnish government has moved to fast-track membership in NATO while expressing hope that Sweden will join them. Finland's Prime Minister, Sanaa Marin, spoke at a joint press conference in Stockholm on Wednesday, April 13th, saying, quote, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has caused Finland to review our security strategy. I won't offer any kind of timetable as to when we will make our decision, but I think it will happen quite fast, within weeks, not within months. The security landscape has completely changed. Sweden, however, says it's looking at other options. Uh, from Yahoo News, quote, Sweden has decided to examine a range of security-related options, including deepening Nordic defense cooperation and urging the European Union to develop enhanced defense policies to offer greater military protection to EU member states that border the highly sensitive Baltic Sea and High North regions. On Thursday, April 14th, Dmitry Medvedev, Deputy Chair of Russia's Security Council, this guy, said, quote, Russia would need to bolster its defenses in the Baltic Sea region. This would include the deployment of nuclear weapons if Finland and Sweden were to join NATO. In this situation, there could be no more talk of any nuclear-free status for the Baltics. The balance must be restored. But Lithuanian Defense Minister Arva, uh, Arvidas Anusauskas found Medvedev's statement puzzling stating that Russia already has nuclear weapons in the region. According to a report from, according to a report from Reuters, he said, quote, The current Russian threat looks quite strange when we know that, even without the president, even without the present security situation, they keep the weapon 100 kil kilometers from Lithuania's border. Nuclear weapons have always been kept in Kalin, uh, Kaliningrad? Is that it? I think so. Kaliningrad, the international community, the countries in the region are perfectly aware of this. They use it as a threat. So, you know, Russia's <laughs> yeah. saying, if you guys join, we're, you know, we're, we're going to put nuclear weapons in the region. And Lithuania is like, bro, they're, <laughs> they're already there. <laughs> that'll be a short trip since, you know. So. Uh. Yeah, it's like a, a, oh, you're going to add a second one? Okay, well, I mean, one's all you need. All right, a second. Uh, oh, oh, Right. At this point, it seems like nuclear weapons are Russia's only, that's their last resort as far as, uh, you know, influencing, trying to keep, coerce people from joining NATO. And at some point, someone's going to call their bluff. Yeah. You know? Because they just keep shouting nuclear weapons, nuclear weapons, because we see their military is not, you know, people were worried. What's the Russian military like? You know, they're probably pretty strong. And now we're like, oh, maybe they're not as strong as we thought. <laughs> so. So. Yeah, I mean, you can they've got a lot of really good equipment, but, you know, if it's not maintained. Uh, you know, it's not going to work very well. And if you got people steal, stealing the fuel and stuff, yeah, it's not really going to go very far. Right. So, 
Yeah, I, I am worried that they're going to do um, at least like a, a tactical nuke or something, and just to see, you know. And if they do one and there is no like overwhelming response, then then they're just going to do a whole bunch more. And, right, know. and I don't know that the U.S stance on nuclear weapons has you know the use of them has changed over the years and that i could be wrong but i think it is still the same thing that it was you know set out by eisenhower where you know like if you pop off a nuclear weapon then we're t you know like we're taking you out completely <laughs> and and it's one of those things that's hard to it's hard to say which way is the right way because um, if you say, well, okay, well, we're going to, maybe that's extreme, but then that, that seems to incentivize them to use tact tactical nuclear weapons. At the same time, if they call our bluff and use a tactical nuke and say, are you going to be the ones that destroy the world? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. These aren't big enough to destroy the world. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, well, hopefully Russia will disintegrate and it will be an opportunity to, like, get rid of these weapons altogether or at least reduce them to a very low amount. I think China might have 500. I think that's plenty for destroying the world. So maybe, you know, <laughs> right, got nobody, nobody can have more than 500. There we go. Yeah, <laughs> but then again, who enforces those rules? Yeah. You know, that comes the whole thing with international law in general who enforces the laws uh, i have to have swiss people go and and verify and count and you know your spy agencies always try to figure out if there are hidden hidden bunkers and hidden weapons and that sort of thing you know oh yeah. you have launch you know have launch facilities we're not aware of <laughs> and you know the nuclear weapons thing in general reminds me so there's this episode of American Dad where Stan, the the, the American Dad, goes to heaven, and he goes to a trial in heaven, and he gets a hold of an angel gun, which was a gun <laughs> that could kill angels. And everybody's like, oh my God. And then there's one guy in the background going, hey, why do we have these again? Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's like that. It's like, why do we have these? right yeah well and the answer of course is nazis that's yeah but they'll stop the nazis and, but uh, so, I, but then we but, had to you know, had to drop some on japan prove they worked or right so, yeah well i say it's the nazis it, decision it's it's the nazis weren't the only people to blame for that uh united states had a had a role to play as well but Actually, the United States had a role to play, but helped with more Nazis. So, so anyway, uh, the moral of the story is fucking Nazis, man. <laughs> uh, anyway, so we're going to talk a little bit about Russian losses. A New York Times article confirms a previous suggestion made by our own Brandon Givens. Yay! That Russia is currently experiencing severe brain drain as Russian professionals flee the country. From their article, quote, 
By March 22nd, a Russian tech industry trade group estimated that between 50,000 and 70,000 tech workers had led, had left the country and that an additional 70,000 to 100,000 would soon follow. They are part of a much larger exodus of workers from Russia, but their departure could have an even more lasting impact on the country's economy. The article goes on to say, the exodus will fundamentally change the Russian tech industry, according to interviews with more than two dozen people who are part of the tight-knit community of Russian tech workers around the world, including many who left the country in recent weeks. An industry once seen as a rising force in the Russian economy is losing vast swaths of its workers. It is losing many of the bright young minds building companies for the future. So, yeah, you suggested it, and they... They're doing it on their own already. <laughs> well, uh, one of the things I'm, I'm suggesting is that the United States invite them. <laughs> and like, well, let's let's bring them over. We need talented tech people. There is a shortage of, especially I think it's a security. And it's like, who who better to protect us from Russian cyber threats than Russians? Yeah, I just got to vet them, make sure they're not working for the other side. And there you go. Yeah, uh, it's just Things aren't looking good for Russia in general throughout this whole debacle. And I mean, how much of this, I, I have to wonder how much of this is just at this point because of Putin's pride, you know? Yeah. That, uh, well, you know, it's the whole um, Mao with um, everybody starving and, he didn't necessarily mean for that to happen, and in all honesty, I mean, there were lots of horrible things he did mean to happen, but the whole thing about telling the farmers to plant the food closer together and killing all the all the birds, uh, he just didn't know what he was talking about. He was an idiot in that sense, and, and Dunning-Kruger to the extreme and got millions killed, uh, but and people are starving, and it's kind of being hidden from him a bit because no one wants to tell him that all of his ideas are wrong because he's going to be the smartest man in the room if he has to kill everyone else in it. So, right. And there's, you know, the saving face. You can't admit, you know, that you were wrong. Yeah. yeah. And you know, that's that, that. Well, that's my pet peeve about even like us and, politicians and largely the voters if like a politician comes out and says you know what this was a mistake that's like the end like the the war on drugs i kind of understand it on its face like you know going after the cocaine it's like oh cocaine's entering our cities and you know it's bad for people all right we gotta try to try to fight it but then after like five years once we figured out uh it's actually getting just more creative. We need to like to have a different plan here. Right. We didn't even talk about saying, well, maybe we should decriminalize it or work toward, you know, like mental health care and uh, addiction care. It's like, oh, no, you're you're saying that you're going to surrender the war on drugs. It's like, well, OK, fine. I would say I'm fighting in a different way, but fine. But no one can admit that, oh, this was a mistake. Um, say that Clinton and um, Biden with the being really harsh, uh, the harsh penalties. Um, and so like a lot of the African-American community, you know, you know, people will not necessarily from the African-American community, but 
in general, they are criticized for harming the that community with their with the excessive punishments. And their logic right. was, well, a lot of the crime is coming from these neighborhoods, and they are the victims. The people there are the victims of these crimes, and we want to protect them from the criminals. But it didn't work. Like, it, okay, it sounds right, but it didn't work. And I think Joe kind of has come out and said, uh, yeah, that was probably not the best thing. But then he gets he gets criticized for it. And like I said, I'm not a big Joe Biden fan, but I could respect that. Yeah, we, you know, that 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 wasn't that wasn't a good idea. And right. That he did come out later and, and express regret over like that, that 90s crime bill that he helped to push through. And yeah. It, and, Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was like, um, that for our democracy to work as voters, we're going to have to really be willing to to elect people that do learn from mistakes, that admit they don't know everything and have all the answers, and that we might have to revise and change bills. (laughs) We might have to say, oh, this didn't work. Let's try something else. For that, you'd have to be like, we have to move past this party over country bullshit that's going on now. And I don't see that happening anytime soon. Yeah. Yeah. The tribalism is tearing us apart. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And the war on drugs analogy, like, you know, you have to even like move completely past the fact that we were bringing cocaine in on military planes at the time too so which makes you know like you look at the war on drugs that reagan started and meanwhile all the cocaine that he okayed coming into the country makes you kind of want to it's like you know john hinckley reagan's attempted assassin is out of prison and he's now on like a sold out tour play at his songs and people were like we don't forgive you but the thing we don't forgive you for is missing oh <laughs> you know like that's, that's, that's not nice well that's wasn't what, that the guy that that thought it was kind of he was like crazy he yeah he was mentally Joey ill he was yeah yeah, he was like trying to get the approval of Jodie Foster, and he thought that shooting Ronald Reagan would do that. I don't know the full story, but yeah, he's finally out of prison. He's making music, and people are welcoming him with open arms. Apparently, I don't, I don't have an opinion on that. I'm just saying what's going on. <laughs> uh, I don't know that I would go see Hinckley. <laughs> I don't. I, I, yeah. I wouldn't either. Uh, all right. So uh, we also have uh, big news in Russia scoring a big win. Ukraine says it's responsible for the sinking of the Russian warship Moskva on Thursday. Kiev says its missiles downed the vessel, a claim corroborated by U.S. officials. Moscow claims, however, that bad weather and a fire in the ammunition storage were what actually destroyed Russia's largest warship. The sinking of the Moskva is the largest naval loss since World War II. I've also seen that some outlets are reporting that Elon Musk's Starlink satellites help Ukraine target the warship and that Moscow has declared digital war on Elon Musk. (laughs) Uh, Though 
I have yet to find any actual official reports yet. So that part of the story is kind of questionable because all of the uh, websites that I found reporting it were, they didn't seem solid. So, well, if know. he if he dies of a polonium tea cocktail, then we we know that there's some truth to those rumors. Yeah, we'll see. Um, but yeah, this whole issue with Moscow has been weird. Russia's been doing this really weird uh, public publicity dance around that, where they're trying to say, "Oh no, Ukraine didn't do that. It was just an unfortunate accident." But at the same time expressing anger at ukraine right like we're gonna we're gonna launch more missiles on on uh even more missiles on on ukraine uh it's almost like they're like we're gonna stop holding back which one why are you angry if if ukraine didn't sink the ship and (sighs) two you've been holding back right well you know i mean that's the thing about the um I guess you'd call it, it's not, maybe fascist. I mean, the word gets thrown around a lot. I mean, especially like Nazi, um, but the conspiratorial authoritarian that usually has a fascist bent. Uh, right. They, they seem to thrive on contradictory statements. Yeah, and, absolutely. And they don't, you know, because at the end of the day, everything is about just confirmation bias, believing what they want to believe. And yeah, it's almost like they just throw out a bunch of different information that might conflict, but people will pick on people will, on their side will generally pick the one that sounds right to them and go with it. Yeah, so they, they can simultaneously believe both at the same time, and it's like, how? Okay. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but, and then they would defend both. Each individually, and it's like, well, how can you believe both at the same time? Oh, I don't. I believe one. So, but you just said the other. Yeah. It, uh, so you just, yeah, you can bang your head against the wall on it, or you know, depending on the individual, you can try to use the Socratic method. But yeah, you know, but this it is a big deal. Like major flagship getting knocked down. Like, oh, that's a David and Goliath story. Right. Uh, which means a lot the, of these other ships could get knocked out too. Right. And is this the same ship that uh was involved in the Snake Island incident where they were told to go fuck themselves? Yeah, which tells you if if a Ukrainian tells you to go go to yourself, you better you better pay attention because something something's happening. Yeah. Better, better try to work it out and apologize. <laughs> Not play. <laughs> Well, uh, speaking of uh, Ukraine and, you know, them doing what they do, uh, Ukrainian tycoon and politician uh, Viktor Medvedchuk was arrested Tuesday, April 12th after fleeing house arrest, uh, after fleeing house arrest. Thursday, Ukraine announced that they'd seized many of his assets, including a yacht, 26 cars, 23 houses, 32 apartments and 30 plots of land. So there's that uh, wealth hoarding we were talking about earlier. <laughs> Medvedchuk, with an estimated net worth of over $600 million, has been a controversial figure in Ukrainian politics, maintaining a close relationship with Vladimir Putin. 
Many believe that Putin would install him as the president of Ukraine if they were to take over. So, he was left out to dry, too. I think um, Zelensky's like, all right, we'll give him up for some soldiers. You know, give us back some of our soldiers. And Putin's like, no. <laughs> That's, that is a big burn. And like, he's like Putin. He's like godfather to some of Putin's kids or something, too. <laughs> like, they're like buddies. <laughs> and, yeah. yeah. Like, oh, does well. not he does not give a fudge at all. <laughs> I guess you shouldn't have gotten caught. It was the weakness. Well, right. I guess they'll seize the Ukraine can seize this maybe and uh, auction it off and pay for the war effort. Imagine a whole lot of stuff's going to get seized auction to pay for the war effort. Right, and I saw an article too that talked about some Ukrainian activists who had broken into Medvedchuk's. Man, giant mansion where he was under house arrest which didn't sound like that big of a punishment actually they said it included like a train a small train that went through the whole house and a golden toilet you know it's like it's fucking russian oligarchs are so tacky <laughs> good god it's so tacky yeah well there's there's a certain style of wealthy tacky um, yes <laughs> style in quotation marks come on yeah. it's a certain style what was it silver spoons didn't the kid have like a little um ricky schroeder didn't he have like a little train or something? oh yeah back in the 80s when being a billionaire was considered cool <laughs> well, yeah I, I think i think it's still considered cool it's well just, among um, billionaires among billionaires yeah um <laughs> Ah. And uh we have uh I guess that you consider this um you know uh a progression of events. Biden uses the G word on Tuesday, <laughs> April twelfth, while speaking in Iowa. President Biden called Russia's actions in Ukraine genocide. Afterward, he reaffirmed his statement saying, quote, Yes, I called it genocide. It's becoming clearer and clearer. Other world leaders have been hesitant to agree. France's President Emmanuel Macron said, quote, I am prudent with terms today. Genocide has a meaning. The Ukrainian people and Russian people are brotherly people. I'm not sure if the escalation of words serves our cause. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau approved of Biden's word choice, but stopped short of claiming genocide himself, saying, quote, there are official processes around determinations of genocide. I think it's absolutely right that more people are talking and using the word genocide in terms of what Russia is doing and Vladimir Putin has done. The way they are targeting Ukrainian identity and culture, these are all things that are war crimes that Putin is responsible for. So that's a weird little dance. Yeah, well, I mean, the the... UN definition might be a little bit loose, but these war crimes that Justin Trudeau speaks of fit that definition of genocide. Um, I mean, I guess you could say, well, if genocide only means attempting to wipe out every member of a race or cultural group, you know, geno being for like the genetics of the race, then 
perhaps not, but it begins to be a little silly um, making that distinction. I mean, you've got a group that is killing civilians on purpose, um, not only with reckless disregard, but on purpose, and using rape and torture as a form of terror. Um, like, I'm two degrees of separation away from someone that was in Ukraine. It's kind of a, a young fellow. His village was overrun. He hid in the cellar. And um, eventually, the it was liberated. But the Russians were going around, and any, like, 20-something-year-old male they found, they were shooting. And, I mean... That's not genocide because they didn't also shoot the women. I mean, like, what's, you know, right. what's our argument here to say, oh, well, and what I'm kind of hearing from people that, you know, they're largely like kids in this area that are maybe their parents support Russia or something. So they, they you know, they kind of repeat the talking points and um, they're saying the same things that I get. I see, you know, like a lot of people in the U.S. seem to be saying, too, the same talking points like, oh, well, you can't really compare them to the Nazis because the Nazis, you know, they like rounded up Jews and stuff and, and you know, we're trying to wipe out an entire group. And that, that's, that's not really what's happening here. And it's like, well, the Ger they're acting just like the Germans did in World War II. They're going in, they're attacking civilians, they're killing civilians and terrorizing people. I mean, that's acting like the Nazis. Like, and doesn't comparing them to the Nazis is and, not an exaggeration. And also, do they need to be, do exactly the same stuff that Nazis did for it to be terrible? And for yeah, well, it to that be considered apparently a war? seems to be their argument, <laughs> or at least to use the N word. The Nazi <laughs> used to use that N word. You got they have to do exactly like them. Otherwise, it's fine. They are just. Well, otherwise, they're just doing what normally happens in war, apparently. That's the other thing is, oh, this is what NATO does. This is what normally happens in war. And they're not doing anything NATO hasn't done. And I'm like, no, no, that's not true. I mean, I'm sure NATO troops have committed war crimes. War crimes happen. They, they do. And it's very unfortunate. And, and, and people should be prosecuted for them. Uh, that doesn't but, justify them. No, it doesn't justify the them. It doesn't justify Yeah. It's like, oh, some NATO troops committed war crimes in Korea in the 1950s. Therefore, we can't hold Russian troops accountable for targeting civilians in so the Ukraine. What? <laughs> you know, like, oh, we can't say what they're doing is, isn't so bad. It's like, no, it's so bad. It's bad. Right. Um, and also it's happening now. Right. It's currently we're still, still happening. We can't like <laughs> we're not even to the point yet of discussing uh consequences for it. We need to stop it. Right. Yeah. Some things that are that are kind of um I'm seeing also in the Russian television is a um Again, it's like it's like the same stuff in the U.S. They took some they took some talking points from from U.S. conspiratorial thinking. 
NATO and the Ukrainian leaders or the leaders of NATO and the leaders of Ukraine are Satanist or pagan Satanists that are involved in blood sacrifice. And they started this war to create blood for, oh. you know, and worship of their gods. They're immunitizing the Eshton. <laughs> and I was like, oh, oh, it's like, you know, the thing. Oh, yeah, there are these um, elite that drink baby's blood and like, get them scared for this. Like, there's not a group of elite people. Where? <laughs> and now, but it, right. and it's not even like, it, it's like on the main Russian television, too. I mean, at least with the U.S., it's, uh, you know, like a subgroup on Reddit or something. Right. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's. Um, they're also, uh, there's another. Oh, um, this is something I saw today. Uh, a show did mention it's kind of a, a, a silver lining or it might be a way out. But it's, it's um, well, it's good. There's one that's good news and one that's bad news. The the good news one is uh, the guy was saying, well, we don't really want to get involved in Afghanistan, and we've already we've already accomplished what we wanted, so we should just go ahead and and end the special military operation. Now, by ending the special military operation, I'm not sure if they mean hold what they've got, or if they mean pulling out entirely. I would think it means hold what they've got, but stop any attempts to advance. Um, but that seems to be talking about ending it. Are they trying, like, the media ha was allowed to discuss ending the special military operation. But they've also moved the talk since Moskva was hit to saying this may be a war against NATO. Um you know, instead of it being Ukraine, NATO is to blame. NATO is to blame. Well, simultaneously, it was an accident on board the ship, and the Ukrainians doing it. Now it's NATO as well. So we got three different realities at the same time. But if they're at war with NATO, then they can call up the reservists and the conscripts, um, and that might be what they're they're planning to do. Right. Yeah. It kind of seems like sometimes Russian media is like a you know how the russian government can sort of test the waters to see how these sorts of things will be received oh yeah well that kind of uh that sums up our news for the day we're going to end uh with our weird file and today for our weird file we are going to discuss the cia's operation acoustic kitty that's kind of crazy, uh, but that's the point. So uh, I'm going to dive in here. Uh, we're going to start. This is from Stephen Kinzer's Poisoner-in-Chief, a book that we used in our very first episodes on George Hunter White, and it's a great book. I highly recommend it. Um, we also we are building up on our website, ciafiles.net, a suggested reading list. So And it's in progress. There aren't a ton of things on there now, but I'm adding to it. And I suggest if you're interested in reading on more things about the CIA and intelligence in general, check it, check it out. We've got a lot of links there for a lot of good books. So this is from Poisoner in Chief. Silent CIA officers watched intently as a veterinarian anesthetized a gray and white cat on the operating table of a, a modern animal hospital. 
When the first incision drew blood, one of the spectators, an audio engineer from Gottlieb's Technical Services Division, felt faint and stepped back to sit down. The others followed the vet's every move. He implanted a tiny microphone in the cat's ear canal, connected it with ultrafine wire to a three-quarter inch long transmitter at the base of her skull, and added a packet of micro batteries as a power source. Then he sewed up his incisions. The cat awoke and, after a recovery period, behaved normally. So in 1962, the CIA was flush with cash and an open mandate to try anything and everything they could imagine to fight communists, to fight communism. At some point, someone said, possibly while tripping on acid, hey, maybe we could use cats as spies. So they reached out to someone with experience in training animals for military applications, Bob Bailey. Now, Bailey had been the head of animal training at Naval Air Weapons Station in China Lake, California, where he'd worked to train dolphins for tasks like detecting sea mines and retrieving lost tools from underwater. In 1965, Bailey left California and headed to scenic Hot Springs, Arkansas, to work with Keller and Marion Brayland at their company, Animal Behavior Enterprises. The Braylands had studied under famous psychologist B.F. Skinner and worked for businesses like Kellogg training animals for food commercials and conventions. Shortly after arriving in Hot Springs, Keller, Keller Brayland died of a heart attack and Bailey took over most of the business operations of the ABE as well as their other enterprise, the IQ Zoo, a tourist attraction where people could see animals performing entertaining tasks. From the Encyclopedia of Arkansas, quote, The zoo had common animals such as chickens, pigs, ducks, cats, dogs, and raccoons performing short, trained acts that demonstrated how animals could learn certain behaviors through rep repetition and reward. A popular exhibit involved a chicken named Casey who would peck at a small bas baseball bat to, quote, hit a home run in a small controlled baseball field. After getting a hit, Casey would round the bases in the correct order and receive an edible reward. The behavior of the Brayland's animals exhibited the training methods used in their conditioning, none of which involved punishment. Their behaviors were reinforced by means of reward. So the CIA and Bailey built a 270-acre farm near the IQ Zoo where they conducted experiments to see what they could get animals to do. This is from an article from the Smithsonian Magazine. Quote, We built towns like a movie set. There'd be only fronts. Without disclosing who, we were work who they were working for, Bailey had his team rearrange the town according to photographs they were given. There were also field demonstrations, including one at the Watergate Hotel in Washington, D.C. This is the room we want to get to, Bailey says he was told. Can you get your raven up there to deposit a device, and can we listen? Yes, we can. The bird would be conditioned via a laser spotter to pick out the room. At Fort Bragg, North Carolina, Bailey created a so-called squab squad. Say that three times fast. Pigeons that would fly ahead of a column and signal the presence of enemy soldiers by landing. 
In tests, the pigeons, says Bailey, thwarted more than 45 attempts by special forces troops to ambush a convoy. But as was so often the case, field operations revealed a problem. There was no way to retrieve the pigeons if they saw no enemy troops. Now, when the CIA decided to target an Asian official who allowed cats to come and go during their meetings, Bailey and the technical services staff, the CIA's James Bond-esque mad, mad science lab, were tasked with turning a cat into an intelligence agent. It's worth noting here that the technical services staff, headed by Zen sociopath Sidney Gottlieb, was responsible for the genesis of MKUltra. Bailey worked on training cats, who were generally not known for being open to suggestions. Bailey, however, has always maintained that any animal is trainable if you know what you're doing. Uh, from the Smithsonian Magazine again, We found that we could condition the cat to listen to voices, says Bailey. We have no idea how we did it, but we found that the cat would more and more listen to people's voices and listen to and listen less to other things. Working with Robin Michelson, a California uh, otolaryngologist, a California otolaryngologist, and one of the inventors of the human cochlear implant, the team turned the cat into a transmitter with, says Bailey, a wire running from the cat's inner ear to a battery, an instrument cluster implanted in its rib cage. The cat's movements would be directed left, right, straight ahead with ultrasonic sound. So despite Bob Bailey's optimism, the experiments overall didn't yield much in the way of useful results. The ghastly sounding surgery went just fine. The cat, however, declined to share the CIA's fear of communism. Uh, from Poisoner in Chief, this cat was a miracle of technology. After the operation, she showed no outward scars, walked normally, and could do everything other cats did. The microphone and transmitter implanted within her worked perfectly. Finally, her CIA handlers brought her to a park for a test mission. They pointed her in the direction of two men lost in conversation, supposedly with this command. Listen to those two guys. Don't listen to anything else. Not the birds, no cat or dog, just those two guys. Technically, the audio system worked, generating a viable audio signal, according to one report of this experiment. However, control of the cat's movements, despite earlier training, proved so inconsistent that the operational utility became questionable. Over the next few weeks, Acoustic Kitty was exercised against various operation scenarios, but the results failed to improve. In the book Wizards of Langley by Jeffrey Richelson, an ex-CIA official named Vic, uh, Victor Marchetti claimed that the program ended when a field operation went severely off script. He said, They put the cat out of the van, and a taxi comes and runs him over. There they were, sitting in the van with all those dials, and the cat was dead. Bailey, however, said this now infamous anecdote isn't actually true. Whether true or not, efforts to turn cats into covert listening devices came to an end in 1967, five years and between 10 and $20 million later. 
Bailey continued to work with the CIA on other animal ventures until 1975, when the church committee hearings exposed a number of CIA crimes, including Project MKUltra and many, the many transgressions of one James Jesus Angleton, which you can hear in our upcoming episode on the CIA's first counterintelligence chief, by the way. Just a little plug. Uh, Bailey went on to work with other governments to train animals for military applications, and he's still alive today, giving speeches on animal behavior and training. So that's Operation Five, Acoustic Kitty. Ten, ten million dollars to. Yeah, I saw various uh, numbers in different articles. Like one said ten million, one said fifteen, one said twenty million. So I mean, it's hard to know, you know, who can you trust on this. <laughs> What one thing that I thought was hilarious in that segment from Poisoner in Chief, uh, you were, you know, so supposedly they did all this uh, training with the cats that I'm assuming would involve, you know, short, brief commands like go, to, you know what I mean, like that didn't involve having a conversation with the cat, <laughs> but these right. guys are like going. Listen to those two guys. Don't listen to anything else. Not the birds, not the cogs or the cats, just those two guys. I'm like, that can't be how they tried to, that can't be the cues that they used to train the cat. That's. Well, I just think it, it, well, it also speaks to the impossibility to train a cat beyond very, very basic tricks. Right. Well, <laughs> that's something like that. that kept coming up too. That's actually in the the one CIA document that's been made public about the about the experiment. Because the people at for that Smithsonian Magazine article, which by the way is a great article, it's got a lot of more information than we included here. Um, links to which you can find at, at the our website CIAfiles.net. Um, but they, one of the notes in the CIA file was they felt like just the, the uh, learning how to get a cat to go in any specific general direction was groundbreaking. <laughs> uh, which I thought was hilarious. Yeah. Wow. It's like, okay. Huh. Well, I don't know if they'd like, you know, spray whoever it is with tuna or something, tuna juice. Yeah, well, that, that, that wouldn't. Yeah, but that might not keep the mission so covert. <laughs> so like, <laughs> somebody just spray me with tuna juice? Why do I smell like tuna now? And why is that cat following me? I'm very suspicious of all this. <laughs> so... But yeah, that's Operation Acoustic Kitty. Um, it's a thing that happened <laughs> here in the U.S. It's uh, pales in comparison to uh, last week's story about, or not last week's story, week before last about the doomsday plane, the flying crowbar, Project Pluto. But <laughs> <laughs> so despite the fact that they, you know, surgically mangled a cat, this is a relatively lighthearted story. Uh, I, was, um, I saw the, I think it was in Riga, Latvia, the museum, and they had the taxidermied animal. It was, uh, this was Soviet though, but they put a dog's head to, on another dog. So 
Oh, I've like heard about that. Head. Yeah, I saw I saw the 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 creature. Um, I, mean, I saw the video too that they were showing, and I mean the dogs seem to be kind of happy, but that's just kind of their nature. But yeah, right. it's, it's, it's cruel are... looking. It's like oh, yeah. I'm sure that it can't be. That doesn't Soviet sound like a bonus Soviet. to have two heads. <laughs> Yeah, the Soviets are like, we will one up your cat, your cat implant, your audio implanted cat, and see you a two headed dog. Yeah. All right. Well, that is our episode for this week. Uh, check back with us next week, same time, and et cetera. In the meantime, be sure to follow us on the socials Facebook.com slash CIA files. Uh, Instagram at CIA Files, uh, Twitter at CIA Files Podcast. And like I mentioned before, and will mention again repeatedly, our website, CIAFiles.net. Um, you can, uh, and there are links there to our merchandise, which is at Threadless. And if you feel like supporting the podcast with, you know, just a dollar or some sort of, th you know, small token, um, there are links there too to our Patreon and to buy me a coffee where you know you want to give us just a little bit, no pressure, <laughs> totally up to you. Uh, we are doing this. We're we're still at the phase of pay like spending money to get to do it as opposed to making money. But you know, uh, it's a labor of love, and uh, the listeners are going up. Good, that's good. Thank yeah. you. Bring them on. The more, the better. Uh, in the meantime, uh, we hope you have a great week with no war crimes or humanitarian rights violations. Uh, and in general, a pleasant week. So see you later. See ya. Bye-bye.